Amen. We'll take your Bibles. Let's open them once again to the book of Philippians. We come this morning to the end of our study of Philippians. Four chapters, it only took us 27 sermons. Here we are at the end in Philippians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 20 this morning. At 14 through 20, it's been a joy uh, to walk with you through the book of Philippians. I prayed a lot about the way in which I needed to begin my ministry here. And I really believe that God was leading us to the book of Philippians because primarily of his emphasis on partnering together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.27, striving together, standing together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there is anything God is calling us to as a church. It is that we might stand together, strive together for the sake of the gospel. That's what it means to be a part of the church. This morning, we come to the end of this study with a message uh, that I love and I'm excited to preach to you this morning. Uh, Last year, an article came out in Christianity Today that was written by the nephew of Benny Hinn. Many of you know who Benny Hinn is. Uh, uh, Televangelist, uh, prosperity, I'm not going to say prosperity gospel teacher because there is no such thing as prosperity gospel. There is no good news of prosperity message, but uh, he's a preacher nonetheless, a faith healer, and his nephew recently got out of the family, was converted, came to know Jesus Christ, and wrote an article about his experience being raised in the Benny Hinn family. A fascinating article, and here's what he says as he recounts the years of traveling with his uncle and the lavish lifestyle that they lived. He said this, he said, growing up in the Hinn family empire, was like belonging to some hybrid of the royal family and the mafia. Our lifestyle was lavish, our loyalty was enforced, and our version of the gospel was big business. Now, to read this full article was not simply saddening or grieving. The reality is it was infuriating for those who love Jesus Christ. But as infuriating as it was, sadly, it wasn't altogether that surprising. I mean, not only because we know Benny Hinn and we've heard the stories, but because we've heard lots of stories like this. We know that there are men and women out there doing this in the name of Jesus Christ, exploiting people, often the poorest people, and preaching to them that if they will simply give everything they have, then the Lord will lavish upon them prosperity, all in the name of Jesus. There was a book that came out last year called PTL, The Rise and Fall of Jim and Tammy Baker. Any of you remember Jim and Tammy Baker? It was recounting their life and the millions of followers they had, the millions of dollars that they received, and recounting the 24 counts of fraud that sent Jim Baker to jail. We also remember last year, it was Creflo Dollar who came to his congregation and said that he needed a $65 million jet, and he wanted the church to pay for it. And it was just this year that Jesse Duplantis, another preacher who was not as in desperate need of Creflo Dollar, needed $54 million for a new jet because, he said, Jesus had told him, quote, it was time for him to get an upgrade. And his current private jet was what good enough So he needed $54 million to get a new one. And these are a little bit shocking, but they're really not surprising because we know these things happen. 
Now, as I've watched this over the last few decades, I've realized the consequences, the result of this, are twofold. First of all, it's resulted into a generation of cynical unbelievers who are convinced that all the church wants is your money. And then, unbelievers like that get invited by a friend to church, and the one time they show up is when the pastor's preaching about money. Welcome to Prince Avenue this morning. It has also led not only to a cynical group of unbelievers that think the church is just after your money. Here's a sadder part. It has also resulted in a generation of faithful, Jesus-loving gospel preachers who are terrified to ever talk about money because they don't want to be perceived as someone who's just after your money. Remember early in my ministry, I found myself preaching on money because I found it in the text of scripture that we were going through. And I would often apologize about talking about money. And I had a deacon come up to me one Sunday and said, Pastor, can I just ask that you stop apologizing for talking about what Jesus talked about? That was a really good word. We shouldn't apologize for anything that Jesus talks about. And that Jesus talks a lot about this issue. But you know, none of this is even new. Prosperity preachers, cynical unbelievers, and then faithful pastors who often feel the need to apologize for talking about money, all of that you find in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. You read 1 and 2 Corinthians, you read Galatians, you read Philippians, you read all of the letters of Paul, and you will find that every bit of this was what was happening, and you can find all of this in Philippians. It's in chapter 1, verse 17, when Paul says there are men out there preaching the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ only for selfish gain. They're not motivated by a love for Jesus. They're motivated by their own well-being. And Paul then comes back in chapter 3 and says, watch out for these dogs, these ravenous wolves, these evildoers, because they are not coming in the name of Jesus Christ. They're just coming to take advantage of you. But Paul knows that because of all of that, there's some baggage in the church. And so Paul, who has received consistently from the Philippians financial support, is writing this book to thank them for their support. And he begins to thank them in verse 10, in chapter 4. And he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you you have revived your concern for me. So they didn't give for a while, but they sent another gift. So Paul's saying, I'm really thankful for your financial gift. You were concerned, but you didn't have an opportunity. But look at what he does here. Now, now not that I'm speaking of being in need. No, it's not that that I needed the money because I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And every and any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul starts to thank them and pauses. He says, no, listen, I, I'm really thankful, but it, it's not because I was just in need and I'm thankful for the gift. And he interrupts himself to give this little caveat to make sure that they know he's thankful, but it's not because just the money. And then he picks up again in our text for this morning. In Philippians 4, starting in verse 14, if you're there, say amen. Amen. He says this, he goes back to it, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except 
you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Now, not that I seek the gift, he does it again, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, that was the messenger that came from Philippi, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now Paul is thanking them clearly for their financial support. But for the second time, because he did it in verse 11, he comes back and does it again in verse 17 saying, now listen, listen, but sh- just know this. I'm not simply thankful because I loved the money. I'm not thankful because I needed the money. No, if you would have sent it or not, I've learned the secret of being content. But his motive for pleading with them to give and thanking them to give goes back to his motive for everything, which is in Philippians 1, verse 25, when he says this, I'm convinced I'm going to remain with you for two reasons, your progress and joy in the faith. As someone who loves you, who wants you to experience the joy of God and make progress in the faith, I have to care about what you're doing with your finances. So Paul really shows us, not only here in Philippians 4, but particularly in 2 Corinthians, as we'll see in a minute, that this little church in Philippi was really a model of giving. There was two things that marked their giving. Their giving was marked by the fact that it was sacrificial and consistent. Sacrificial and consistent. They gave to the extent that it cost them something. They had to give up something else in order to give. And it was consistent. They were faithfully giving to the work of the gospel. And Paul is deeply thankful, but more thankful, not because of what it did for him, but what it did for them. Now, here's the deal. The Philippian church is a model for us in giving. Consistent, sacrificial giving. They show us how to give. They show us why to give. And what I want to do for you this morning is I want to plead with you in this area by showing you four reasons why you need to follow the example of the Philippians. Four reasons why you need to be giving sacrificially and consistently to the work of the gospel through the church. I want to encourage you to write these down. The first one is this. Giving is essential to partnership. Giving is essential to partnership. Now, one of the primary themes, I already mentioned this throughout Philippians, is this idea of partnership. It is all from this root word that means fellowship, that we are sharing something. We have a shared faith. We have a shared mission. We have a shared vision. And Paul uses some form of that word twice in these verses. Look at verse 14. It was kind of you to share my trouble. What does that mean? They saw Paul's need and felt that it was their need as well. They shared, they participated, they partnered in his trouble. He goes again at the end of verse 15. No church entered into partnership, same root word, with me in giving or receiving except you only. Paul says, the kindness that you displayed was displayed in the fact that you saw my need and you partnered with me 
by sharing in my trouble and supporting me financially. Again, the entire theme of Philippians is that the church is a partnership, that we are striving together, we are standing together. We are not simply an isolated group of individuals. We are those, because of the command of Christ, who have been joined together in a local body of believers because the place in which we use our gifting and the way in which God advances his kingdom is through this type of gospel partnership. And what I did in my Bible is I went to verse 15, I circled the word partnership, and then I put an arrow to the words giving and receiving. Because he says, no church entered into partnership with me and giving and receiving. What is partnership? Well, partnership is giving and receiving. That's that's what it is. And what he does there is he uses these familiar financial idioms that they would have understood. It would be like us talking about the idea of credits and debits, deposits and withdrawals. That's the words Paul's using. He says you've withdrawn and you've deposited. You've had debits and you've had credits. You say, well, what is it that they've received? Well, think about it. They they received the gospel of Jesus Christ. They received the ministry of Paul. They received the sacrifice of Paul and the suffering of Paul in Philippi. They received his faithful teaching. They received his encouragement. They received his instruction. They received over the last 10 years consistently from the Apostle Paul. Paul was pouring himself out for the sake of the believers in Philippi. For 10 years, they had been receiving and receiving and receiving. And they understood that the nature of partnership is not simply receiving, but giving. So what did they do? In response to all they had been receiving, they began to give back to the Apostle Paul. Now, if you want to think more about this, go back to my first and second message I preached about 100 months ago in Philippians. And listen to those messages when we talk about the whole story. Because what happened is this. Paul left Philippi, immediately went to Thessalonica... And by the time he got to Thessalonica, he had received a financial gift from the believers in Philippi. He had just shared the gospel with them, gone to prison and been beaten and publicly humiliated for them. By the time he got to Thessalonica, someone had already sent a gift. Why? Because they understood the nature of partnership. We have received, therefore we want to be involved and give. That's why he uses this word over and over in the book of Philippians, this giving and receiving partnership. One commentator says it this way. He says, there is an inseparable relationship between financial giving and gospel partnership. If you aren't giving, you aren't a partner. You're more like a consumer or a customer. But Paul does not view the Philippians as customers. He views them as co-laborers. They've got skin in the game. This is why he calls them partners. Why? Because of giving and receiving. You say, well, how does this apply to us? It applies to us because if there is anything you take away from this 27-week study, it must be this. God has called you as a believer to be plugged in to a local church. And the local church is a partnership. 
We've used the word membership for years. It's fine. It's just not as biblical of a word as partnership. If you want to read through the New Testament and find one word that describes what it means to be a part of a local church, you would find that the word partnership best describes it. It is a biblical term in which this relationship goes two ways. There is receiving and there is giving. You say, well, what am I receiving? Well, you're receiving a sermon right now. which is not simply me getting up here and winging it. It came with a decent amount of work. And I'm just going to be practical. You're receiving maybe not quite enough, but some air conditioning right now. You're receiving some lights. You're receiving a sanctuary that you walked into that is clean. You, you have come and you're receiving the fact that your children are there being well taken care of and loved on this morning. I could go on for 20 minutes telling you all the things you're receiving simply from being here this morning. You are receiving much. I'm receiving right now. That every time we walk into this place we're receiving, you're receiving all throughout the week from the ministry of the church. Someone stopped me this morning and said, thank you for the flowers that you sent to our family for my mother this week. Someone else stopped and said, thank you. The fact that Doug came to the funeral home yesterday. There's just a lot of receiving going on. And because we're partners in this, you should expect to receive. That's what God has called us to do. But we should expect you to give. Not simply of your money, but of your time and of your resources. That this is a partnership and there is giving as well. The work that we do as a church demands partnership. Listen, everything that happens here doesn't just happen. It happens because there are people in this room who have chosen to partner together with us and they understand how partnership works. Now, now let me get specific. I am deeply thankful for this church and the amount of faithful partners we have. I've been here nine months and I'm overwhelmed by the love of this church, the faithfulness of this church, the family feel of this church, for the amount of people that are giving faithfully and consistently to this church. But can I just tell you this? Do you know that over half of our members give nothing? Do you know this? That the number one largest category of givers in our church of those who average $290 a year in giving. Which means they're just thoughtlessly, thoughtlessly throwing in some change every once in a while. But not so thoughtlessly they don't fill out an envelope and want at least a little bit of tax credit for it. Do you know the second largest group of givers in our church? It is those that are giving on the average of $3,000 a year which I would have to say even that for some of you is a sacrificial gift. It is seen in the sight of God and is appreciated because that's literally as much as you can do and you may even be tithing on that. But I guarantee you the vast majority of the people that fall into that category are not tithing. They're simply just giving a little bit to the Lord. And the fact is, is if we're super honest with ourselves and we're evaluating the amount of people that are giving and the amount of people that are not, we have to just simply say there's a lot of people in this church living on church welfare. There's a lot of receiving going on and not a lot of giving. I'll tell you, in my previous church, and this is something we'll do here, if anyone got nominated for a position of leadership, a, a teaching position, or to be a deacon, uh, any position of lead, be on a committee or on a board, whatever it is, then I would simply give their names to our, our financial administrator, and I wouldn't ask any details. I've never been in a church where I've looked at anybody's giving. I don't want to know those things. But what I do want to know is if you're going to be in a position of leadership, we need to know if you're giving. And what I would say is this, are they giving consistently and sacrificially? You say, how do you know if it's sacrificial? 
We simply just think about it. If, if we know that a guy has a business that seems to be successful, they're taking vacations, they drive a nice car, they live in a nice home, and they're given $200 every two weeks, it's probably not sacrificial giving. Let me just tell you something. I, can, I, I was thinking about this this morning. I got emotional as I was thinking about it. I cannot tell you how heartbreaking it was every single year to find out that a person I felt like was partnering with us, was with us, was on board, was supportive of the church, was not doing anything financially. Which what that says to me is this, they're not a partner. They're not a partner. We give because that's what it means to partner with a church. And that's exactly what the Philippians tell us. That's the first reason, because giving is essential to partnership. But write down the second reason. We want to give and take on this model of giving, also because giving is a great investment. Giving is a great investment. You say, well, where do you get that? Well, I get it from verse 17. Giving is a great investment. So he talks about this sharing, this partnering and giving and receiving from the beginning until now. That's where I get this consistent idea. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, consistent. Verse 17. Now, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, this is, this is one of those verses that you just read, and then you, if you're careful, you'll stop and go, wait a minute, this makes no sense. Because what he's saying is this, is that, yes, it's just a good idea to invest your money in something that matters. And the work of the gospel matters more than anything else. So for no other reason, you should just be giving to something that matters. But he says it's deeper than that. He says, I want you to be giving because of the fruit and he uses financial terms again here, that increases to your credit. What Paul says is this, is that when you give, your account is increasing. Now, this doesn't seem to make much sense. But he says, listen, every time you make a withdrawal, you're making a deposit. Every time you have a debit, there's actually a credit going on. Now, I'm really trying to find a bank that functions this way. This is a phenomenal idea. Now, let me tell you something. There is a bank that functions this way, and it's called God's Bank. That in the economy of God and the way he works, what Paul is saying is this. Is that I have heard the word of Jesus in Matthew 6. That it is foolish to spend all of your resources on the things of this earth where moth and rust are destroying them, where thieves are breaking in and stealing. But instead of that, Jesus has said, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal, where you will enjoy something for eternity instead of enjoying something for a few weeks. He says, listen, you cannot make a better investment. I'm not here to tell you that if you give, God will prosper you financially. I am here to tell you that if you give consistently and sacrificially, God will increase to your account and your eternal credit something that can never be taken away from you. I love the way Randy Alcorn says it. He says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. So invest in the work of the kingdom. Now listen to this. Listen to me. If this is true, if this is true that your consistent sacrificial giving is storing up for you eternal reward, why would a pastor who loves you not talk about it? 
Why would I ignore this issue? I cannot ignore this issue, number one, because we're walking through Philippians and it's next in the text. And you're going to know I skipped it. Number two, it would be ungodly and unhelpful for me to not look you in the eye and saying for the sake of your eternal future, for the fact that God has promised that there's great reward for those who give, give consistently and sacrificially. He says, I, I seek the credit that it has to your account. It is increasing to your credit. And do you, I, I feel like I need to say this. I think you know this, but I just need to get it out there. You know I'm not on commission, right? <laughs> I just, I know that, Brother Bill, I know you probably had, you, I know people don't know how this works, but I'm not, like, if, if we double our giving, I don't get more, okay? That, that's not... That's not how it works. I get a salary that is approved by multiple different levels of people, and all of us get a salary. What would happen is if every member started to get involved in giving, we would just be able to double the amount of ministry and the amount of money we're sending out of this place. No, I'm not on commission, so I can say to you with full integrity, I want you to give not because of what it does for me, but exactly what Paul says. Not that I seek the gift, but I want the fruit that increases to your credit. So be wise enough to invest in something that lasts. Giving is essential to partnership. Giving is a great investment. But write down the third one. Giving pleases God. Giving pleases God. Verse 18. Paul continues with these accounting terms. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. Epaphroditus came from Philippi, went to Rome where Paul was in prison and brought a financial gift. But listen, for the first time, Paul switches metaphors. He's been talking about withdrawals and debits and credits and financial terms, but then he begins to talk in terms of worship. And look at what he says. Your gift, this is the end of verse 18, is a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What Paul does is he brings up this idea that's found 16 times in the book of Leviticus. This odd idea that when someone comes and brings a burnt offering to the Lord, when that offering is burned, the smoke that goes up and the aroma that goes up is pleasing to the Lord. Now, I know I'm living in Bogart, Georgia, and some of you think, well, yes, because the Lord loves when we smoke meat. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> well, you may be able to make a case for that, but that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is this, is that when the smoke comes up from a burnt offering, the aroma is pleasing to the Lord, not simply because the Lord loves the smell of smoke, because the aroma of that offering is actually the aroma of faith. It's the aroma of love. It is someone taking an offering and presenting it to the Lord. And by presenting it to the Lord, if it is in fact a sacrificial gift, then the aroma of that offering goes up to the Lord. And as the Lord is breathing that in, it is pleasing to him. Why? Because it is the smell of faith in action. And we know from Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith pleases God. So if the gift is sacrificial, not your token amount, 
Not if you're just throwing in a couple hundred dollars there, there, even if consistently, but it's not a gift that costs you something. If it's a gift that costs you something, why do I say that? Because the gift that costs you something is the only gift of faith. So if that offering plate goes by next Sunday, and, and listen, listen to me, and, and I, I'm telling you, just in integrity, Andrew and I give sacrificially to the church. When you, when, you, when you put an offering in there that costs you something, what you're doing is this. You're saying, Lord, I believe that what you said is right. And I'm putting this in here because I believe you're going to keep your promises to me. It is an act of faith in God. And that aroma is pleasing to the Lord. You know what? It's an act of worship. It's an act of obedience. It's an act of exaltation. It is actually something that glorifies Jesus Christ because what you're saying is, I love Christ and obedience to Christ more than I love all my stuff. Jesus is better. Eternity is better. So in worship to Christ, I'm going to give because it pleases God. And I don't think we really need any other reason than that, but it's simply one of the many reasons Paul gives us. It's essential to partnership. It's a great investment. It pleases God. But let me give you the final one this morning. The final reason I want to plead with you to give sacrificially and consistently. The fourth reason is this. Because you can never outgive God. Now I hesitated to put that in there. Because it sounds trite and we've all seen it embroidered on something, you know. But the truth is, is I can't skip verse 19. Now, verse 19, listen to me very carefully, is very much like Philippians 4.13 in that it cannot be removed from its context. Everybody likes to take Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and forget that it's talking about the nature of contentment. Paul gives this promise to a specific group of people because he knows this group of people. This is a promise that could be applied to you but may not be applied to you. Here's what he says. And my God... Paul says, my God that has seen me through all of my struggles, my God that has taught me the secret of contentment, my God that has seen me through prison and shipwrecks and sleepless nights and hungry days, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now you say, how can Paul speak with such confidence to the Philippian church to say, I know this for sure. My God will take care of every need you have according to his riches and glory. Because Paul understood the way in which they had sacrificed and given faithfully. Therefore, he can say with confidence, knowing what you have given, I assure you God's going to take care of you. Now, I cannot say this promise is for every one of you this morning because I don't know if you're giving. If you are giving sacrificially and consistently, I can assure you this promise is for you and you can take it to the bank. See, because he's saying, I, I know the way in which you've given. And he knows that they've sacrificed. So we're not going to get into this, but in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul talks to the Corinthian believers. He talks about this offering he collected he talks about the believers in Macedonia, which is the church in Philippi, and he says this. In a severe, te listen carefully, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their, listen to these two words, extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
Extreme poverty, wealth of generosity. They had nothing, they gave abundantly. They gave knowing that they weren't gonna be able to take care of their basic needs if they gave, but they gave anyway. Paul is talking to them. Jesus says in Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says this. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly, and he's specifically talking about money in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, whoever sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Again, Randy Alcorn says, God is the greatest giver in the universe and he will not let you outgive him. I was riding in the car about six, uh, was about a year ago uh, in Montenegro where I was uh, working with some church planting movements there and I was in the back seat and two of my closest friends, one's name's Draho, one's Vladimir, uh, they're both Slovak and they're both church planters. And they were just talking about their financial needs Both of them live on support. Neither one of them have enough support every month to make ends meet. Both of them are giving significantly. And yet I sat in the back as I listened to them go back and forth talking about all the stories of the way in which God had miraculously provided for them. And I sat in the back thinking this. I've seen it a hundred times. Those who give sacrificially always have supernatural stories of the way God provided. Every single time. If you step out in faith, I'm going to be a giver. I'm going to be a giver. I assure you, you will have story after story of the way in which God has taken care of you. And listen, I love this. My God will supply every need of yours. He doesn't even simply talk about the financial need. Every need, the financial, the spiritual, the emotional, the relational, every need God provides to those who are faithful in their giving. Why? Listen, because God blesses faith. God blesses faith. God blesses faith. And if your giving is an act of faith, it pleases the Lord. Now, here's what I want you to hear as we close. God does not need your money. He doesn't need your money. But he desperately wants your heart. And according to Matthew 6, The greatest indication of where your heart is, is where you're spending your money. And so what Jesus says is this, that if you will invest in things that matter most, your heart will follow. And the reality is, is that God has so much stored up for those who are giving faithfully. And God is calling you in your giving to trust and follow him. This morning, I, I want to beg you. Listen, don't, don't close up yet. Look at me. I want to beg you to trust and follow Jesus Christ. If you have never chosen by faith to trust Jesus Christ... If you are depending upon anything else to get you to heaven but Jesus Christ, I plead with you. This morning, acknowledge your sin, turn to Jesus Christ, give your life to him. In a few moments, we're going to have an invitation. Come talk to one of our pastor's prayer partners. Cry out to the Lord, ask him to save you of your sins. Start 
trusting and following Jesus. But I want to plead with every one of you, continue to trust and follow Jesus. Trust him enough to stop giving him your token amount and start giving a gift that costs you something as an evidence of the faith, of the, of the fact that you trust him enough to take care of you. Because if it is true that your giving reflects your heart and you are not giving consistently and sacrificially, it says something about the condition of your heart. My question is this, what is it saying? Do you love him enough? Do you trust him enough to trust him in this area? Say, Pastor, where do I start? I'll tell you where to start. I'm just gonna be really practical. Going back to the Old Testament, which Jesus reaffirms in the New Testament, start by giving 10%. And 2 Corinthians 8 is very clear that we are to grow in the grace of giving, meaning we continue to increase in our giving. If you've been a believer for 30 years and you're still given 10%, you're missing something. Just start and trust God enough to trust him with your finances and watch how he comes through. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.